Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 15th, a Wednesday. It's late in the day in San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. It's already March 16th elsewhere. Uh, in Japan in particular, where my guest is talking to me from. It's been quite a day, quite a week uh, on the economic front in the United States, uh, dominated by market uncertainty, crisis almost when it comes to the price of uh, bank stocks. The New York Times leads today with a crisis in Switzerland of one of their banks, Credit Suisse. Uh, the Financial Times leads with the same story. Um, and uh, the Wall Street Journal leads with a story about Goldman Sachs' attempt to shore up uh, Silicon Valley Bank and, and, and how that failed. Overall, I think we are talking about the way in which the banking system seems to have been broken this week or potentially broken. Everything, in fact, uh, seems to be broken. Uh, it's not just banking. It's right across the board. Uh, and uh, it reminds me of the great Dylan song. Everything is broken uh, from his 1989 Oh Mercy album. Broken lines, broken strings, broken threads, broken strings. Yeah, I can't play too much of that, otherwise the great man will probably sue me. But certainly everything does seem to be broken. Um, and one other fellow who has been articulating this for a while is my guest today. He is the Japanese-based uh, scholar, Chris Hobson. He has an excellent substack, Imperfect Notes of an Imperfect World. And he had a, a posting a couple of weeks ago things are breaking. He teaches um, at uh, the Australian National University, but is based in Tokyo in Japan, and he's joining us there. It's his Thursday. Chris, uh, is everything breaking in Japan as it seems to be in the West, or at least in the United States? Well, thank you, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Um, well, I mean, Japan is, is, is very stable, so it doesn't feel like uh, everything is, is, is quite breaking yet, but I'd say things are, are feeling more and more fragile. Uh, Japan is highly dependent uh, for food uh, and for energy on imports. And so there is certainly a sense of increased fragility. Uh, and I think also I've been based in Japan for, for more than a decade. And, and one of my really pivotal experiences here was the, the Fukushima nuclear accident. And, and that really was uh, a time when, when you felt that, that sense of fragility and, and things that you kind of take for granted uh, blowing up and not working. So I think since then I've become a lot more kind of aware of, of the assumptions that, you know, we, we expect certain institutions and, and things to simply work. And I think there are more and more signs in more and more places of these basic institutions failing or, or not really working to the extent that we would expect. Right, Chris. And uh, we've talked about this 
quite a lot actually I'm keen on the idea that one world seems to be coming to an end but this new world hasn't been born it's not clear what it is and the old world is breaking you summed it up I thought rather well in your uh, everything is breaking uh, substack essay uh, you wrote things are breaking not unimportant things basic infrastructures and core services states and not in one or two places call it polycrisis call it history this is all happening now you're seeing it from japan as i said you are um an expert on political and economic development before uh, teaching at the australian uh, national university you had a job you had had a job at the united nations university so you are a, a global thinker uh, you're australian based in japan you've spent a lot of your time traveling around the world what are you seeing chris when uh, you note and you worry that everything seems to be breaking? Well, I mean, to come back to the examples you were talking about at the beginning of, of Silicon Valley Bank, right? When, if you think about the people and the companies which deposited money at Silicon Valley Bank, I mean, how many of them do you think were considering the risk that Silicon Valley Bank would go under and they'd lose all their deposits? And... You know, most of the time, we, when we put our money in banks, we work on the assumption that the money will be there and that we can access that money. Uh, when we get on a train, we work on the assumption that we'll safely get to the other to the destination. When we turn on a tap, we expect the water to be safe. You know, when we, when we plug something into the wall, we expect there to be electricity. We expect when we go to the bank, I mean, sorry, go to the store, that food is going to be available. And... In different parts of the world, we can see more and more examples of where these basic assumptions are simply not holding, right? And so in that piece, I was talking about uh, some of the examples. I mean, there are multiple, some of the examples I don't even include in that is, you know, there are multiple countries in the last year that have had inflation of more than 100%. Yeah, Argentina comes to mind. Yeah, They're in the headlines Argentina, today, Syria, although that's not very Syria. new. The Argentine economy has been broken it would seem since the end of the 19th century. I mean, it's never worked. It's, a, it's an interesting thesis, Chris, but could one argue that we expect things to work when they shouldn't necessarily? Throughout human history, most things haven't worked particularly well. Why should we expect them to work any better today? Well, I mean... I think we've been fortunate to to have been living through a period of, of remarkably, you know, uh, stable, peaceful era, and maybe Which that era. Well, I, I don't, you, you you may have been. Well, sorry, reading well, I mean, newspapers from myself. What era are you talking about? Well, I mean, certainly the last couple of decades, and I mean, you can even take it back further, right? There really hasn't been any great power conflict since World War Two, right? And. You know, a lot of people folk are sort of comparing now with, say, into war, uh, 1920s, 1930s. And for me, it feels a lot more like kind of 1890s, 1900, where you've had this long period of relative peace and stability between great powers, no really massive conflicts. But then you have this kind of interaction of political structures changing um, economic developments and all these advances in science and technology and all these things kind of crashing together. Yeah, the vertigo years, there's a wonderful book out about that. And certainly it is eerie to compare the period before the First World War and the 
technological upheaval and the uncertainty and the anxiety and the excitement with today, they seem similar, although in military terms, of course, uh, I'm not sure we're on the brink of of the first world. Well, you, you mentioned that there was no great power conflicts. You're talking to me from Japan, from East Asia. What about Korea? What about Vietnam? I mean, you, you certainly had wars which involved great powers, uh, but you know these were these were able to be maintained, and you didn't have direct conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union. You avoided nuclear war. Um, you avoided serious escalation. Um, so that's not to deny that you know obviously there are these conflicts which are pretty consistent. Uh, but on a systemic level, you know, looking at the international system as a whole, there was a degree of, you know, if incomplete, relative stability. And, you know, I think the question is when you look at the world now and whether you look across politics, economics, culture, you know, whatever, I mean, do you feel that the indicators and the direction where societies are heading uh, are positive or not? And, and when I look in most major areas, the likelihood that things are going to be going to be in a better condition in five years time for me seems relatively low. So I'm sort of trying to think through, well, what does all that mean, um, you know, for us as individuals? Yeah, and, and, and your essay, I thought, was very good. Um, you had another essay on weakening powers. The, 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 the examples you use in this crisis of things breaking all speak of the failure Perhaps you might call it the post-colonial state. Uh, there's rotting meat in South Africa. There's a Nigerian cash crisis. Uh, there's the failure in Turkey of uh, after the earthquake, a dysfunctional state unable to save the people who were victims of the earthquake. There's a broader catastrophe in Lebanon of garbage. Um, a train crash in Greece killing many people and great criticism of the administrative state in terms of uh, their responsibility in that crash. There's pure violence, a kind of hob a reversion to a Hobbesian violence in, in Haiti. Uh, there's the failure of the state, the post-Ba'athist state in Iraq. Uh, and there's what you call Pakistan on the brink. They're all it seems whether it's Pakistan or Haiti or Iraq or Turkey or Nigeria, they're all examples of the failure, whether you call it the post-colonial state, the modern state. Is that fair, um, Chris? Well, I mean, for that post, I was very purposely trying to focus on countries which perhaps normally don't appear on the headlines of the New York Times or The Guardian. Right. It's the second world. I mean, South African. And I know that some people might take that as a patronizing term, but it's not the advanced world and it's not the global south. Uh, Turkey, Lebanon, South Africa, uh, Iraq, even Pakistan. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, yes, you know, but at the same stage, you know, when I posted this, it was exactly the same time as you had the train derailment uh, in Ohio, right? Um, you know, I think there are indications of this also. You can look at the UA in the UK, the collapse of healthcare there, right? Um, so in a way, what I'm trying to suggest is, first of all, 
there's a whole series of problems happening in different parts of the world we don't normally think about. And second of all, the problems that they're facing are perhaps not that far away from the problems which potentially uh, we might have to deal with as well in a highly developed economies. I mean, as I said before, in the case of Japan, the country is incredibly dependent upon imports for food and energy, uh, which means that things things are very you know fine here, but the, it's quite uh, a fragile kind of stability. It could be you know changed quite drastically, um, and I think in a lot of countries we're having more and more sort of signs of institutions really not functioning, uh, and so I'm really trying to think about this globally uh, and also see it as it's potentially more than just being about um, developing country issues. It seems as if artists in some ways get it better than sociologists or political scientists. Uh, as I said, I, at the beginning, I quoted Dylan's Everything is Broken, which seems to sum up everything. Broken lines, broken strings broken threads, broken springs, broken idols, broken heads, people sleeping in broken beds. Ain't no use jiving, ain't no use joking. Everything is broken. Seems to sum up what we're going through. And then you mentioned the, the train crash in Ohio. That came straight out of Don DeLillo, white noise. I mean, he predicted that 30 years ago. Are we edging towards what artists always imagined as some sort of apocalypse as some sort of dystopian condition well i mean first i would i would really agree with this sentiment that you know i think artists have a real powerful capacity to uh, help us understand what we're going through uh, and you know one of the things i try to do with my notes is, is really draw on a lot of literary sources because i think they're just so vital in helping us um Understood. Who who, in, who else, uh, Chris, in addition to Delilo and Dylan, do you think are helpful here? Well, I mean, at the moment, I'm I'm reading and thinking a lot about Kafka, and uh, you know, Kafka for me is someone who not only kind of captures really powerful aspects of um, the the world of bureaucracy, the the functioning of power, um, but for me, he's also actually kind of a model uh, of creativity because when he kind of emerges in the world he just completely comes out of nowhere and for me he's such a powerful reminder of uh, human creativity and I, and I think it's really really important to hang on to you know the value and the uniqueness of human creativity at a time when when everything related to um, all these artificial intelligence models are really encouraging us to forget about um, you know, what humans are kind of capable of. So I think what artists really help us understand is, is I think the world that we're heading into is is profoundly weird, right? And yeah, it's surreal. It's to, to, to borrow a, a word from, uh, from, from, from Kafka, it's Kafkaesque. Mm. Uh, and I think that he's another good example of someone who wouldn't, in some ways be surprised with the world we're living in as a hundred years, I think almost after he died, um, especially in the United States with the privatized bureaucracy and the, the stranglehold of bureaucratic thinking in healthcare and in politics, um, which for non-Americans might often seem rather surprising. 
Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of our theories that we get from social sciences are simply not well equipped, A, for, for dealing with the world undergoing really radical change. I think it's much better dealing with a world where there's a sort of a relative degree of stability. But yeah, second of all, just, just the weirdness, right? I mean, if you think about the last couple of years, how profoundly weird it has been with everything we experienced during the pandemic and now how quickly we have happily forgotten the pandemic right um and and so i, th I think turning turning um to to, to uh, sources of, of artwork and fiction i think is vital for understanding where we're going and the way to come back to something we were talking about earlier, I think the way that I'm thinking about it is it's much harder to see what is taking shape and it's perhaps easier to recognise what is starting to, to kind of give way, right? And a lot of the problems that we're facing, these are problems which all countries are facing in different ways. And for all the democracy versus authoritarian stuff, you know, these, these are problems both types of regime are dealing with, whether it's, you know, economic debt, whether it's climate change, whether it's energy, whether it's social media, whether it's AI, these, these are problems for all societies. And they're likely going to, you know, combined, it's going to radically rechange, sort of change where we're going. So I think that's what I'm trying to work through. And I don't really have any clear answers, but I'm really trying to, to, to think through what this all means and where we might be going. We, uh, Chris, um, a few weeks ago, we had a, another Australian uh, academic on our show, teachers in the United States, a former fairly senior United Nations guy, Roland Rich. He, uh, you're probably familiar with his work. He teaches at Rutgers. Um, he has a new book out, The United Nations as Leviathan. He imagines the United Nations becoming the Hobbesian authority in a globalized world. You used to teach at the UN University. As I said, you're an Australian in Japan. You're an international kind of guy. Is the United Nations, the, or the, the failure, the weakness, the disappointment of the United Nations, is it the problem? Or does it offer a way out of the crises of all these states from Nigeria and Lebanon to South Africa, Haiti, Iraq, and Pakistan? Well, I mean, you know, the Roland Rich interview, right? Like, it's you asked him, so what is what has the United Nations achieved over the last seven or eighty years? And he struggled to come up with really good answers, right? So after you know seventy plus years of the UN somewhat functioning, the the idea is let's double down on it, and you know, in a way, like let's just have another UN. I think points to the real limitations of our thinking at the moment. And, you know, I think the really difficult thing with the UN is international cooperation is, is profoundly necessary at the moment and having forums within which states can communicate directly and indirectly is, is vitally important. Um, but at the same stage, you know, I think we have to admit that the United Nations and many of its agencies have become increasingly ineffectual okay, they're, they're not only ineffectual but bureaucratized they're, they, they they could come out of a, a kafka novel 
So if it doesn't go global, can we go the other way, Chris? What about local? A lot of people talk enthusiastically about local, uh, local politics. That's the only area, I think, in America where there's any kind of optimism, politics, democracy, um, activism at the local level. Perhaps we're returning to Tocqueville. Is there any potential there? Uh, the countries that you cite in, in your essay on things breaking, um, uh, Lebanon in particular, it, it always seems to me to be the real warning. Is the world becoming Lebanized, if there's such a word, or Lebanonized? Well, you'd have to check. There's a fantastic article by Alex Hockley called The Brazilianization of the World. And he suggests... Yeah, we forgot about Brazil. They could be in this one as well. <laughs> yeah, so he's, so he's basically saying the rest of the world is becoming more like Brazil. So it's an interesting kind of thesis rather than the developing world becoming more like the developed world, the developing world, sorry, the developed world becoming more like the developing uh, countries. I mean, I think... You know, one of the ways I try and think about it is, is I ha I struggle to see how we're going to get anywhere better if we don't, uh, you know, create better people, better communities, better relationships. So the local is, is profoundly important one way or another. And, you know, I think one of the things is individually and like collectively as families and societies, you know, there are so many forces kind of arrayed against us um, and I think it's really kind of challenging just to actually hold on to and build and, and, and strengthen relationships at the local level but also you know individually like protecting our head spaces protecting our capacity to to think and read and engage in a kind of a more logical manner with politics um, so I think it has to start local. I think it has to start really at the personal level as well. I wonder, we've done some shows also on a return to some sort of feudalism or neo-feudalism. Uh, most of the people arguing that have been on the show's point to the inequalities in feudalism. But I wonder whether the return to feudalism reflects more again, the crisis of the state in places like Haiti, Iraq, Pakistan, Nigeria, Turkey, South Africa, uh, and the way in which uh, cities, uh, cities will exist independently of geography, independently uh, of their surroundings. Um, is a return to feudalism or a type of feudalism where physical geography is replaced by something else uh, and the the nation state no longer exists. Um, is that conceivable in, in, in the way in which everything seems to be broken? Of course, we can't go back to the social hierarchies, the social etiquette of the feudal age. Well, I mean, I think this is something that the, the Bitcoiners and a lot of people in Silicon Valley tend to forget is that states really like their power. Um, and I think, you know, one of the issues with a lot of uh, these kind of arguments is that I think they underestimate um, the capacity of state authorities to hold on to and fight uh, their coercive, for their coercive power. Um, and I think potentially what we're seeing is kind of, you know, the movement towards states, which are perhaps, you know, more hollow 
and they're, they're, they're more capable of coercive power and then less capable of kind of maybe more um, protective or, or more kind of beneficial services uh, for its members. Um, you know, with the, the kind of arguments about neo-feudalism, I think one of the things that where I think it's really helpful to think about it is the potential that that we really are moving into or in the early stages of, of a different type of, of configuration of politics and economics. Uh, and even if it's still kind of very early stages, I think, you know, it's useful uh, to kind of think about these things. I mean, we haven't even talked about the potential impact which is coming with, with, with all of these um, AI technologies and then also the impact of social media and what all of this is also going to do to people's capacity to communicate, receive information, all these types of things. Yeah, today um, OpenAI brought out chat GPT-4, which is a major upgrade on 3.5. And we know that there'll be chat GPT-5 and 6 and 7 and 8 in the not too distant future. Google are also launching their own uh, generative AI products. How do you expect the AI disruption to impact on your world where things are already breaking? So what I'm trying to think through at the moment is what a world looks like where reading and writing does not hold the same necessity that it has for us. Um, the potential that, you know, like we, we're moving in a direction where people will actually become less literate uh, and, and modes of communication will actually become uh, less text-based or, or less uh, generated by, 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 by ourselves. And so, you know, potentially we're, we're really at the very early stages of a really significant shift in the way that we actually communicate and, and share information. Uh, and I, I, I have no comprehension of, of what exactly that, <laughs> that's going to mean, but it strikes me as we really are in the early stages, something very, very kind of significant there. And if we think about the amount of confusion, anger, disinformation and harm which has been caused by social media and the internet over the last decade or so. And now we're about to, you know, let loose all these different types of AI programs. I mean, based on that, you just have to assume the next 10 to 20 years, things are going to be very fraught and very weird. You use this, you keep on using this word surreal or, or weird, Chris. Um, I brought up Hobbes before you brought up Kafka. We talked about the Delilo. Are there any political thinkers who you think understand this world, who predicted it? At the moment, I'm spending a lot of time with uh, thinkers from the fin de siècle, like the turn of the century in Vienna, uh, especially Hermann Brock uh, and Robert Musil. Um, these are these are novelists, but they basically sneak philosophy into their novels. And Brock's got this amazing novel called The Sleepwalkers, uh, and within that he has this essay called The Disintegration of Values, and he he talks about you know 
part of the lead up to World War One being about the, the collapse of, of all kind of markers of value and this real sense of society and culture being being unmoored. Uh, and, and Robert Musil, who's famous for The Man Without Qualities, similarly kind of capturing this kind of sense of drift and decline and, you know, sort of this collapse of the Austrian Empire where, you, you know, people in Vienna feel it kind of falling away without really knowing where it's going to end up. So I'm trying to turn to them to, to help me try to, to think through uh, what is happening. I mean, I think you could also look at the experience of the collapse of the Soviet Union for another, another kind of time where you have these assumptions about stability, which, which really kind of collapse in a relatively short space of time. Maybe the world then is one giant Habsburg empire falling to pieces, unraveling. No one quite believes it anymore. People are nostalgic for another age. Um, we're all listening, maybe not so much to Bob Dylan, but to the Radetzky march. Is that, uh, and we know, of course, how it all worked out in trenches of the First World War, although I think in a military sense, that's not really very realistic. So, so what's the worst case scenario, Chris? Well, I mean, I think the worst case scenario is, is really what's happening right now with geopolitics. And so, you know, what you see between the United States and, and China is, is really a hardening of positions. And, you know, one of my, my most serious and basic concerns is, you know, these two countries and their allies really putting themselves on a path where it's, it's really difficult to avoid the likelihood of conflict. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if we think what's been happening in the Ukraine is has been disruptive, I mean, this is just, this is nothing compared to what would happen if you have kinetic conflict around Taiwan or East Asia. Uh, and so I, I really, I think we profoundly underestimate what things going wrong really looks like. And in the same way, leading up to the First World War, there is this kind of, you know, almost forgetting about what kind of the consequences of conflict really are and this sort of stumbling into World War I. Uh, and I think we really, really want to be thinking very carefully and very hard about how we can avoid uh, that happening. And, and what you see in the Ukraine is just this constant, escalation and escalation over the last couple of years i mean sorry over the last year so the possibility of of that getting out of hand or us kind of getting on a path where conflict becomes inevitable in east asia i think these are really some of the worst case scenarios which we have to be really thinking about now you're going to give me nightmares i'm going to go to bed i'm going to be dreaming of first world war um you end your essay by telling your, 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 your readers or advising your readers, you say, listen carefully. There and here are not so far apart in terms of comparing Pakistan and Haiti and Iraq with, with the West. How do we listen carefully, Chris? How do you listen carefully? It's not like listening to a song. You're a, an analyst of the world, listening from... Tokyo, what advice would you give to our viewers and listeners about listening to the world? 
Well, I mean, I think important thing is is really a diversity of inputs, right? So looking looking at news feeds which go beyond the country where you're living in. Um, also, you know, coming a range of different sources. I mean, I'm reading a lot of history, a lot of literature, uh, and then also when you look at the news, like really looking for for things which stand out. And I mean, I've been thinking a lot the last couple of days about this very intense cyclone freddy which has become the longest and one of the most powerful cyclones the world has ever seen which tracked the whole way across the indian ocean and not only hit mozambique it hit mozambique twice and it's kind of you know i think it's it's so horrible but it captures something really powerful about this, this about this kind of world we find ourselves in i think like looking beyond our immediate context and also thinking about what's happening in other places and what that might suggest about where we might be or might be going, I think this is kind of really important. I mean, in the same way, if you think about the pandemic, right, you know there was that period in early 2020 where you get the signs coming out of China, you get things happening in East Asia, and the rest of the world was really, like, not particularly interested and so in a way, I kind of feel like we're at that kind of early stage, like now's the time to, to pay attention and think about what might be happening.